Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read the first seven verses of scripture here. And uh, I want to do tonight, I want to preface these remarks uh, tonight similarly to what I said last Wednesday night. I don't want you to take this out of context because I'm certainly not asking you to sit stoically and stone-faced and not respond to the word of the Lord. But while we're going to be talking about some things that uh, under some certain circumstances could certainly ignite a fire in us, I, I, I don't want to put out that fire, but I, I said last Wednesday I don't want us to just hear this. I want us to get it. And so tonight I feel that same unction in my heart not to just hear this with our ear and let it just excite us superficially, but let us get this because if we get it, it'll last past this evening or tomorrow at noon. If we can just hide this away in our heart. There's a principle that is shared in this story and that is what I want more so than the story itself. The Bible says in 2 Kings 4 and 1, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? And then look right here. He said, Tell me what hast thou in thy in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shalt pour out into all those vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Verse 5 says, So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet... A vessel, And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. Finally, verse 7, she said, She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. And uh, with the help of the Lord tonight, I want to, my subject is, is simply this, something from nothing. Something from nothing. And I know that can sound superficial at first glance. But if we get it and don't just hear it, we'll have something to take home with us tonight. Amen. May the Lord bless you and you can be seated in the fear of God. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us about this particular story in a little more detail about the woman in question or the woman at the center of the story. That this is a woman who had for sure seen better days. Because the lady at the center of this story was the widow of Obadiah, the Lord High Chamberlain of Ahab. And so he was a, a leading man among uh, Ahab's ruling uh, sect of men. And so when her husband was alive, she was, uh, as Josephus says, nourished in the lap of luxury. But when he died, she seems to have been reduced to utmost poverty. She didn't just fall on a little bit of lean times, but it had really come to a screeching halt. 
the world which had smiled upon her in her days of prosperity had now turned its back on her, having nothing of value in the house, having depleted everything. Kind of sounds like the woman with the issue of blood, having spent all. She is down to nothing. But the nemesis in this story seems to be this unnamed or unknown, uh, only one description of this hard-hearted creditor. She was seeking relief from his desires because it appears to us that his desires were somewhat wicked because he had threatened in order to settle the score that we'll just sell your two sons and exchange them as slaves in ex- for the payment, in exchange for the payment. And apparently he had the power to do this. And so I think it's important that we understand this was not just an idle threat. This was not an off-the-cuff statement. But he said, the only way we can settle this debt is we're going to sell your two sons into slavery. And so I think that we would all agree this would be a precarious position. And really and truly, I don't think there's none here that could really even relate to such a peril. To say the only way we can fix this is we're going to sell your children into slavery. And uh, so it was... uh, a very vulnerable thing, to say the least. I don't think anybody would desire to be there. I think quietly, to some degree, all of us desire security. And we desire not necessarily excess, but we desire enough. <laughs> enough. And uh, I, I, uh, I think we're, I think we're uh, very safe to say that. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sure some people would paint outside of the lines here. But uh, for the most part, we are comfortable in that security of having enough to know that there's going to be enough. As uncomfortable as it can be for all of us to, to be deficient in whatever area, to, to realize some measure of emptiness in our life, as uncomfortable as that may be, I will tell you that in that there can be a blessing. And uh, I, I think Sunday or last Wednesday... Uh, in, in a recent service at least, I mentioned that some of my most memorable times have not necessarily been on the snow-capped mountains with the Lord. But some of the times that I have really watched God do something incredible in my life has been during a season of great despair. And uh, none of us long to go back to those moments, but we certainly want to give credence to the fact that in that valley of question, God had an answer And God was sufficient. I talked about that last Wednesday night. And so here is the lesson that I think this destitute woman is about to learn from the prophet Elisha. There's going to be more than just oil in her home. I know that many of you, and certainly perhaps the majority tonight, understand or know this story and you, you know where we're going, at least the story. But without empty vessels, if there had not been this moment in her life, she would have never discovered this dimension of God. I know what I'm about to share may sound simplistic, but I remember being in a service one night and and, uh, a minister was called on to just get up and greet the congregation and he said, you know, he said, I have never been blind, so I've never needed God to restore my sight. I've never been deaf, so I've never needed God to restore my hearing. Those are areas I've never walked down that path, and so I've never needed God to do something like that. But then he began to talk about some things that he had encountered. And he said, but when I was here, God met me there. And when I was faced with this situation, God was right there. And he wasn't a minute late. He just satisfied the need and the longing that I had in my life. And so... Uh, tonight, the lesson that this woman learned at the hand of, in the wisdom of Elisha, there would have never come her way had there not been this moment of need in her life. And so without, uh, without some great need, there will never be a miracle in our life. And uh, there, there'll never be a healing if someone's not sick, and there'll never be deliverance if someone's not bound, and on and on and on. And so without this empty vessel or vessels in her house, There would have been nothing. When Elisha met this woman, she had nothing. She had lost it all, seemingly. No husband, no income, no food, no hope. 
Elijah tells her to gather what she has, which she declared to be nothing more than a pot of oil. She commanded, uh, she is commanded by Elisha to go and borrow empty vessels. Now, it's, it's kind of a vulnerable thing to need to borrow something. You always kind of feel like you got your hat in your hand, so to speak, when you're needing something, you're needing to borrow something. You don't have it, and so you're going to have to borrow. But then uh, Elijah tells her, in no uncertain terms, borrow not a few. You're going to go on a mission and get as many vessels as you possibly can. And so it appears from Scripture that she was instructed to get everything that she possibly could from those who lived nearby. And then carefully at the, look at the instructions of verse number 4. The Bible says in 2 Kings 4 and 4, And when thou art come in, when you have gathered all that you can get, then when you are come back into your house, when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and thy sons and shalt pour out into all those vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. And so if not to insult your intelligence tonight, but I think it's very, very important that we understand the instructions were no one's going to be involved in this but you and your two sons. No one's going to be involved in the miracle save the only ones that were involved in the debacle. And so it was you that was about to lose your sons. It was your sons that were about to become slaves. And so I want to show you three something very specific. So when you get back home, you go in, you shut the door, and then you pour into those vessels. And when a vessel gets full, you just set it to the side, get another borrowed vessel, and begin to fill it up again, shutting the door. Shutting the door provided privacy of the task of not only filling the oil, but not everybody's going to see what God is about to do. If I could just put a comma in what I'm saying here tonight, I will tell you this, that we experience things individually, and we, we go through things individually from time to time, and and often some of the things that we see God do, God does that in private. He does that just for us. It's personal. God is not, God is not about always just being out there so that the world can just see what he's working out. But I'm going to tell you that, that God behind closed doors has worked for us more times than we can ever dare imagine. And some things are not even things we could probably in some cases even share. But we just knew that God said, I want to show you something. I'm not going to grandstand. This is not about something that's going to take place or play out in an arena. This is not for the masses. I want to show you something. And I will just say, say tonight that the more things that God shows and shares with me, the more convinced I am that he is God. The more convinced I am that he will carry me and see me through no matter what it is that I face. They were the only ones whose lives had been affected by this threat and now they were the only ones that were going to be the beneficiaries of God's grace up close and personal because they're literally pouring from vessel to vessel, from vessel to vessel. I will, I will say tonight, these three that were in this particular scenario were much like the servants at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. The only people who really knew what was going on was the men who were pouring the wine. Amen. The only ones who truly understood the magnitude of the moment were the men who knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that they had poured water in this vessel, but when they started serving it, there was wine that was coming out the other side. I don't know how they kept their peace. <laughs> I don't know how they didn't draw attention to themselves. I'm just going to be very honest with you. But again, this was not about God grandstanding. God didn't do this for the groom. He didn't do it for the bride. He didn't do it for the family of the groom or the family of the bride, but he did it for those servants. He said, I'm going to show you something. If I could just put it in our language, it's going to blow your mind. Amen. So here are these sons. I don't know who was holding what vessel. 
I don't know who was holding the empty vessel, who was pouring, but there's one thing for sure. There's only three people involved. And so it was apparent that everybody knew that this oil is coming from somewhere. Amen. And so it was a miracle, no doubt. I have no doubt. I know the scripture says that they shut the door, but I have no doubt that they testified of this later. I'm basing that on what I think I know about human nature. I believe they had to talk about this at some point. But for the moment, God said, I want to show you something. And when God shows us something, I will say again that that a man with an argument is, 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 he don't stand a chance against a man with a testimony. Someone that only has an argument doesn't stand a chance against someone who knows that they know that they know because God will show us. The widow begins to pour the oil into empty vessels and she just keeps pouring. And he said, when one vessel is full, then set it to the side. Only then does the first vessel, as they begin to pour, only then does the first vessel begin to empty itself. Interestingly, the woman uh, only gets as much oil as she has empty vessels for. And uh, I, I think this, God knows exactly what we need. I don't know if those vessels numbered in 12s or I don't know if those vessels were 20 or 30 or 40. I have no idea how many vessels, but God filled every vessel that she had. And so God knows what we need and he knows when we need it. I know that sometimes we're kind of wondering if God is, is really listening, if he really sees the crisis, if he really understands the drama. But I'm gonna tell you tonight that God gets it, he sees it, he understands it. And God, even when we say, I have nothing, or, or, or what I have is nothing compared to what I need, I just want us to get the fact that God can take something and make he can take nothing and make something from it. Amen. I, I understand the human mindset. There, there's something about emptiness and there's something about nothingness that upsets us, but it moves God. Amen. It makes us uncomfortable, but God is right at home in the midst of nothingness. We don't really like going down the paths that, that seemingly lead nowhere or that, that a, a journey that seemingly is going to give more questions than answers. But God loves leading us there. And, and I say that intentionally. I, I, I typed that out and thought about it. I, I deleted a few of those lines. I said, you know what? I'm going to put that in there and leave that in there. I believe that God from time to time loves leading us down these paths, not because he is sadistic, not because he had some twisted sense of humor, but because he desires to show us something that we will never see otherwise. And so God is not leading us down a path because he hates us or because he's trying to pick on us, but God said you can only see this if you go down this path. You can only see it if you go down this path. I remember several years ago, uh, my son and Alan were uh, just young young boys, and they had uh, we had gone on vacation. Alan joined us on vacation that year, as uh, was kind of a common thing then. And and uh, we would we were up in the mountains somewhere, and we wanted to go see a waterfall. And uh, so we we asked him one how far it is to the waterfall. One thing I figured out is you don't ever trust somebody coming back to tell you how far it is. So you're almost there. I mean, to hear them tell it, you ought to be able to feel the mist from the fall right where we're standing. And so we walked and we walked and we walked and several times we thought about turning around. You can't look at us and tell, but we're not hikers. <laughs> we can see all that pretty well most of the time. But, and so we kept with some folks, felt, wasn't that where some of the journey, some people felt sorry for us and gave us their sticks to help us get up we were a pitiful lot, a pitiful lot. And several times we thought about turning around, but we just kept thinking, but if we turn around now, we'll never see the waterfall. And I don't want to just keep talking about our miserable life. I'll tell you this, that we kept walking and we just kept climbing and we just kept going and we did see the, we did see it. But the only way you can see it is to walk down this path. And no matter what anybody said, no matter no matter what happened, no matter how tired or no matter what, I mean, it must have been a quarter of a mile. <laughs> 
It wasn't pretty good. It wasn't pretty good. But no matter what anybody said, we if the only way you're going to experience this is get on this trail and stay on this trail, it's uncomfortable. There were many times we second-guessed what, what in the world were we thinking about. Who cares? We'll buy a postcard. It doesn't matter. We'll get somebody to email us a picture, but we just kept saying we got to see it. We've come too far to turn back now. I feel in the Holy Ghost tonight, not, not to just try to humor you, but to tell you that you've come too far to turn back now. If you stop now, if you stop now, you're never going to behold what God has in store for you on the other side. I'm standing flat-footed before you tonight to tell you that God can make something from nothing. God can take us in our, exi- in our exhausted spirits and in our exhausted frame of mind. God can take us in our exasperated moments of journey with him and give us strength just for another step, another day to push one more time. I'm not trying to hype you tonight. I, this is not a pep rally. I'm not even wanting that kind of atmosphere. That's why I said I want you to get this and not just hear this. Amen. We will never see God the way he wants us to see him unless we make this journey. Amen. We don't like emptiness. We don't like going places of uncertainty, but God wants to take us there to reveal and bear his arm and show us what he is all about. He desires to show us something we would never see otherwise. It's in those empty places that where we cannot lean on anything but him. It's there where we have nothing that we can fall back on. We just have God and his provisions. And if God doesn't come through, guess what? It's over. If God doesn't step in, if God doesn't intercede, guess what? This is all over. But I'm gonna tell you tonight before we crank up the band and start having a party, a pity party, and thinking that we are the only ones that have ever been in such situations. I want you to understand tonight, there have been many before us, some I'm going to talk about from this book that's open before me tonight, but I'm going to tell you, they're not just all captured in these 66 books, because there are others that have walked, they're sitting here tonight, whose testimonies would be relevant. In Second King, 1 Kings 17, it was when Elijah's brook dried up. It was after the raven stopped feeding him every day. Now he had a pretty good deal going because he was camped out at the brook Cherith and he had all the water that he needed and God had commanded the ravens to bring him food every day. No matter how squeamish that might make you feel, it was a drought. It was it was a famine. And so God was taking care of his own but it wasn't until the brook dried up and it wasn't until the ravens stopped delivering dinner every day that Elijah went to another height in God. So I'm telling you that when the brook dries up and when the ravens or when the provisions stop coming in, it's not that God is saying you're done and you're washed up and it's over. It may be that God is saying, come on, I wanna take you up one step higher. I want to show you another dimension of me. I want you to experience something in me that you would never do otherwise. Just a few verses later, we find another miracle taking place because of barrenness. In 1 Kings 17, 12, if the, if the woman had not had a meal barrel and a cruise of oil that was going dry and running low, she would have never experienced the miracle that was in her life. She had reduced herself down to just gathering sticks one more meal, this is it. We're gonna eat this meal and we're gonna die. And then all of a sudden, Elijah has some wild idea and says, bake me a loaf of bread. You fix me something to eat. I'm gonna tell you, there had to be some, some kind of faith that was going on in the heart of this woman, amen, because she agreed to do that. And because of that, God said, I'm gonna show you something. I'm gonna show you everybody in the neighborhood wasn't there to see that mule barrel every day or that cruise of oil every day. That was something that took place in her house. I'm gonna tell you tonight that the way a church has faith 
is not because God just all all together does something corporately or collectively for us. But the way a church has faith is because you have faith and you have faith and you have faith. And where did that faith come from? That faith came whenever you opened that cruise of oil in your own life and you saw that it's not just a sermon and it's not just a song. This is not just a Sunday school lesson, but this is a living God that I didn't leave at the church house. I didn't leave him in the Sunday school room. I didn't leave him at the campground. I didn't leave him at general conference, but this God came home with me. This God is working in my house. This God is in my address. Hallelujah. This God, this God is in my life alive and well. Alive and well. Amen. If we're not experiencing God's provision or his presence, could it be because we have not emptied ourselves enough of us? Could we still be distracted and dependent upon ourselves? I got this. I got this. Because you see, for the most part, and take this in context, but for the most part, we're going to eat tonight and in the morning whether God shows up or not. Because we got it. We have it. We're going, to, we're going to clothe ourselves tomorrow whether we have some divine thing happen in our house tonight or not. Because if, if my guessing is right, we have to do like that to hang up another garment. We got this. We got this. And so sometimes the reason we don't experience some things is because there's not room in our lives to experience it because we got it. We got it. So this story teaches us several important things. Emptiness can really be a gift from God. When, when, when Paul could not build churches because he was in prison, he didn't suck his thumb. He just started writing. <laughs> now, again, take my comments in context. I know this is uncomfortable to think about and sometimes even more uncomfortable to admit, but Paul accomplished as much, if not more, in some instances than he would have had he been out. If he was just building a church in a city, if he was just doing it brick and mortar style, so to speak, we may have been robbed of some of the epistles that we have that have lived on through eternity. And so what was born at an empty place in his life What was born in what we may think was a season of barrenness has continued to echo on through the ages. And I know we're expecting the Lord to come at any moment, but I'm going to tell you if time tarries, the writings of Paul will echo on to the ears of another waiting generation. And so I'll tell you that when Paul couldn't build a church, he said, I'm going to write to a church. If I can't lay another brick or if I can't put on another shingle, if I can't throw another palm branch, I will write a word of encouragement. I just wanted to lift you. I just wanted to encourage you. I just wanted to help you along the way. Paul accomplished so much. Emptiness tells us that we have a need. Matthew 5 and 6, one of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so we have to admit that emptiness and and understand that God is the only one that can truly fill us. If we look at Exodus 4, the Bible says, speaking to Moses in in the book of Exodus 4, the scripture says unto Mo, the, the scripture says here, the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? Now I want you to don't jump ahead of me in scripture. Don't jump ahead of me in, in the story. Just stay with me at this particular moment in time if you can. What is this in your hand? And Moses said, A rod. It may seem like an arbitrary question, but it was anything but. The rod in the hand of Moses was a symbol of his ability. It was a symbol of his strength. Moses had been able to use this rod to his own benefit. And so let's think back in Scripture, if we can, about this rod. What is this in your hand? It is a rod. The Bible says in Exodus 4, 
verses 2, 3, and 4. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thy hand? He said, A rod. Now here's what the Lord said. Cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent. Now don't stop reading right there because you're going to find a real human side of Moses on display. And the Bible says, And Moses fled from before it. The same, he did what we would, <laughs> we would have done. We run from the serpent when we didn't just lay it down. He just laid something common to him down on the ground. All of a sudden it became a serpent and Moses got out of there because he was in an uncomfortable place. And now comes a real uncomfortable command from the Lord because apparently, I'm not sure how far Moses ran, but God had to bring him back into the picture, had to bring him back into the frame. And he said, no, wait a minute, Moses, you've got to get back here because this is not over. And the Lord said, put forth thine hand. Amen. You just picture this ever how you want to picture it. Maybe you've got Moses just 10 foot tall and bulletproof and he just thrust out his hand. But I think a man who ran. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it real. I think a man who, who now is pulled back into the frame is somewhat out of breath from running away and now being called back. And he says, stretch forth thine hand. I'm, I'm not going to play this out for you, but I got a pretty good idea. That hand wasn't just bold and brave. But he said, take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. Is this God just showing off? Is this God flexing his muscles? Is this God just trying to impress a man? Not on your life. Amen. While there was indeed a miracle here, I'm going to tell you, I, I don't want to ever underestimate the humanness of Moses. And I don't ever want to underestimate our own humanness. There have been times when I should have stayed that I ran. There were times that I ran and God had to pull me back into the frame. There were times God said, reach out your hand. And that hand wasn't as, as, as strong as it should have been. That hand wasn't as forceful forceful as it should have been but it was it was shaking a little bit I, I, I was a little wavering in my faith oh hey, that's all right you can leave me out here by myself if you want to amen God said God said take it by the tail I've been there I feel like that I wasn't all that I needed to be but God said I want to show you something beyond your humanness I want to show you something amen Moses was shown that your ability what you have in your hand, your strength is really in my hand. Moses was shown that what you have can change in a moment. What you think you have in your hand may not be what you have in your hand at all. What you think is your strength and your ability and your own shrewdness may not be your shrewdness at all. God wasn't through revealing a little bit more of himself to Moses, so we pick up reading in verse number 6, Exodus 4. And the, and the Lord said unto him, and the Lord said furthermore unto him, Now take thine hand into thy bosom. Put thy hand in thy bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous white as snow. God, I mean, are you really messing with me? Well, what is the deal here? Put your hand in your bosom. He pulls it out as leprous as snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. And when he put his hand in his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom, and behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. Or in other words, it went back just like it was. Again, reiterating that God was not just making random demands of Moses. He was going to show Moses something a little more personal here. The rod became a serpent, and then I made it back a rod again. Amen. This is what it's going to I'm going to use this to benefit others. I'm going to use this to benefit not just you, but others. Amen. But now I want to show you something, Moses. I want to show you something, not that's, your, that's in the rod that's in your hand, but I want to show you something about the hand that was holding the rod, this leprous hand, being, or the hand being made leprous and then being made whole, I think was a symbol of God saying, I'm able to... To take care of you. I'm able to take care of you. When people turn their back on you, I'm able to take care of you. When people walk away from you, I'm able to stand beside you. When no one is around to sustain you, I'm going to tell you, Moses, that this is not about the rod and a serpent, but this is about you. This is about something connected to you that you can't get away from. I am able to take care of you. And so I just want to tell us tonight that us, our health, our well-being, our ministry, 
mental capacities, whatever it may be, our mental health, our physical health. God says, I am going to take care of you. I can take care of you. I can take something from nothing. Whether or not Moses had plain speech was really of no significance whatsoever to God because he can change all that. The Lord went on to use that same rod to assist them in crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 14. God can always take what we deem as nothing and turn it into something. I'm pretty confident that Moses had no clue that he had a sea parting instrument in his hand. He didn't have a miracle in his hand. But God took nothing and he turned it into something. But that was not the only account. I will give you a handful. Judges 15, with the jawbone of an ass in the hand of Samson, God slew a thousand Philistines. In Judges 3 and 31, the Bible talks about an ox goad. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It is a stick with a pointed end to goad an ox. When you're trying to plow and they're wanting to go slow or go another way, you got an ox goad in your hand. It was just a tool. It was not a battle, an instrument of warfare. It was just a tool in the hand of a farmer. But I'm going to tell you with an, with an ox goad, amen, God slew 600 Philistines. In John 6 and 9, with a very insignificant lunch, God fed 5,000. Joshua 6, these, here's a group of people. They're marching around the walls of this mighty city called Jericho. What are they against this great city? But the Bible says, I want you to march around it. I want you to march around it day after day after day after day. And on this day, I want you to shout. I want you to give it everything that you have. And I'm going to tell you when these people walked around the walls of Jericho with nothing but obedience in their heart, God took something from nothing. Amen. Joshua chapter 4, the, by the priest placing their foot on the very water, the very, the very water of Jordan swelling tide. Amen. Why they said when the feet of the priest touch the water, then and only then is it going to split. God took something out of nothing. Genesis 12 with just one promise, with just one promise. You don't have to read but just um, this many verses in Genesis chapter 12, but with just one promise, God gave all of Canaan to Abraham with just one promise. Amen. It was a long way from coming to fruition. There were many miles that would stand between where Abraham stood there and when they walked into the promised land, but God with one promise gave it to them. In 1 Samuel with just one stone, amen, little David, little David with his sling brought victory back to the camp of Israel. In Hebrews 11 as well as referred to in Hebrews 11, but also in Genesis, amen, the ark of Noah with that ark, amen, we know he saved Noah and his family. But Hebrews says with that ark, Hebrews 11 says with that ark that God condemned the world. Amen. He took nothing and he sure made something out of it. Joshua chapter 2, it just seems, it doesn't even come into play. We can't untangle it. We can't make sense of it. But here's what, here's what the harlot was told to do. If you want to save you and if you want to save your family, when we come back in, I want you to just put one cord, one red cord in the window. Amen. And with nothing. Amen. How are we going to win? How are we going to survive? Amen. How are we, how did you say we're going to do this, Rahab? We're going to take one red string and we're going to hang it in the window. What is one red string against all of that? Well, it's nothing. But when God is behind it, amen, I say tonight, please don't just hear this. Let's get this. When we say, God, what is this against all that I'm facing? I've just come tonight to tell you that with God, it is possible. Yes, it is. It is possible. It is possible. In Judges 4, in Judges 4 with just one simple tent spike, a man who seemed invincible, a man who, who no one could quite nail him to the wall, God used Jael to kill Caesarea, the captain of Jabin's army, just a cup of milk. And a tent spike. 
I want to tell you, when you're going to battle, I think I'm pretty safe in saying that milk and tent spikes are not going to be among your warfare. But God said, I'm going to take nothing and I'm going to make something from it. Amen. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, with just one song, God defeated Moab and Ammon. In Daniel 6, with one prayer, God stopped the mouth of the lions. Please, we're not so caught up that we just think that's a Sunday school or a child's story. Do we think that? Amen. This really happened. Amen. The king paced the night, never slept a wink. And at daylight, he was out there saying, I knew your God could do it. I knew your God could do it. Amen. If Daniel was wavering in his faith, I promise you the king wasn't wavering in his. He knew that God was able. In Acts chapter 3 with just one prayer, God raised the lame man at the gate beautiful. I'm not here tonight to try to give you every instance in the word of God. I'm sure the list could go on and on and on and on throughout this holy book. There is story after story after story of God taking nothing and making something beautiful out of it. And I want to reiterate tonight that they're not just in this black book that's open before me, but they're here living among us this evening. I'm sure there are men and women right here tonight amen that could tell you amen I want to just share what God has done he took nothing and God made something out of it and he did it just for me he did it just for me I'm going to ask our musicians to come amen and over the next 30 minutes or so I'm going to close looking back to our text Elisha's first question, and this, I've said all of this to get right here, so please don't check out or you'll miss the reason we gathered. Here is a woman that comes to Elisha with quite a conundrum. I, I'm down to nothing. I'm fixing to lose my only two sons to slavery. I admire the cool-headedness, if I could say that, of Elisha. Because he is presented with a very complicated situation. But just think about his reply. The question, I think, struck right to the heart of where we all live. And here is one thing that I would like to drive home, if I may, that sometimes when we are faced with situations, or we have others that are faced with, maybe family or friends that are faced with situations, one of our great impulses is to try to fix it ourselves. And if we have the power to do it, we do it. And we ought to just all say amen. We'll cry and repent here in just a few minutes about all that. But if we got the ability to pull somebody out, we pull them out. And it may be not in their best interest. Pull them out. And so he, instead of volunteering to fix the situation, I mean, this is Elisha. He's had many prayers answered. This is Elisha. This is not some man, first day on the job, scratching his head, thumbing through the manual. This is Elisha. He's walked with Elijah. He's beheld all the miracles that have happened at the hand of Elijah. But his first question he asks is he pulls her back into the game and says, what do you have in your house? I don't know how many will get this term, but he wanted to make sure she had a little skin in the game. And not just somebody's out here fixing everything. Well, what do you have in your house? This woman has to be bawling her eyes out. I mean, her blood pressure's got to be through the roof. Am I safe in saying this? I'm not trying to be humorous. I mean, her anxiety level's got to be immeasurable. And so he asked, what do you have in your house? That was his response. Instead of fixing this, he said, what, what have you got that can help in this situation? Amen. I mean, he wanted her to dig deep into her life because sometimes it's easy for us to just come up with this and say, I don't know, or nothing. 
And after a while, somebody has to prod us into really looking and see what, what is it that you have in your house? It didn't seem like much. She said, I just have an empty vessel. But then he began to instruct her. And with those instructions, she began to discover something else within her that she didn't even know was there. She was willing to do whatever she needed to do to turn this situation around. She wasn't really looking for a handout. I don't think that at all. And I'll say this tonight in all sincerity. Just imagine with me, because we know the story, just look what Elijah would have robbed her of if he says, how much do you owe? Give, give me the address of the creditor. What, what is it? That, how can we settle this up? How can we make this right? Let me take care of this. Look what Elisha would have robbed her from. I'm, if I'm to be honest with you today, this is a real struggle that we all face. Because if we have the ability, we try to fix it ourselves. Not just for us, but for others without relying on the hand of God. But you see, if we moved every pebble out of the road, we would never see what God could do in a difficult situation. And so she said, I, I just have this one vessel. Why don't, let, let's stand tonight. I just have this one vessel. And so Elisha did not discount her one empty vessel. He didn't say, that's all you have. He didn't say, is that the best you have to offer? I'm convinced whatever she would have confessed to have had, that Elisha would have said, well, let's build on that. Let's build on that. So no matter how insufficient what we have may be against the backdrop of what we need, let's work with what we have. Because we're serving a God that can take something from nothing. No help from without. You see, unless there's a willingness to really get involved in this ourselves, we're going to rob ourselves. I don't want to at all seem unkind here in these comments, but I want to tell you something. That if you come to church and just watch somebody else worship, I understand that there is, there is a blessing in watching somebody else get a blessing. There, there is. There, there, there's, a, there's a joy. There's a, certain, there's a certain something that can come our way being a part of watching somebody else be blessed. But can I tell you that unless you step into that yourself, you're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself. You see, churches, and God doesn't want to just move for a third of the congregation or two-thirds of the congregation. God wants to move for everybody. And so if we just want to sit back and be a spectator, there may be a little satisfaction somehow that comes our way, but can I tell you, that that is nothing compared to what God wants to do in our life if we would just step out and step in and involve ourselves. Amen. We don't have to leave empty. We don't have to be there. But you see, God does great things, great things when we are standing with nothing because it's at that intersection we have done all we can and come to the end of ourselves. Am I speaking to anybody? We've come to the end of ourselves that God does his greatest work. Luke 15 tells the epic story of the prodigal son. And I know, again, you may know the story. But the punchline of this story is not that he took all he had and went and spent it. The punchline of the story is not that he came home to a father who welcomed him. But the punchline of the story is that until he realized he was empty, until he had nothing, but it was at nothing when he felt the servants in my father's house, they've got it better than me. 
it was right there that God breathed enough courage into this young man to get up and walk home. Amen. There's something interesting about that story, and I may preach on this and make a whole mess out of it one day, but I just got this burning, I got to tell you. The father said, kill the fatted calf. Not, don't just go cull one out of the crowd. Don't go kill a fatted calf, but kill the fatted calf. Amen. I believe that father knew he was going to come home the day he left. And he started fattening the calf. And every day he fed that calf in faith. Not today, not today, but maybe tomorrow. Amen. Another sermon for another day. Gideon thought he was going to win the battle with men that had gathered together, but God had other plans. Now you know the story, but stay with me. He started out with 32,000 men. You Bible folks know I'm right here now. And then God told Gideon, he put it in his heart. He said, you need to ask these 32,000 men one question, Gideon. Ask them one question. Oh, don't make me ask this. Don't make me ask this. Yes, you got to ask them, Gideon. So Gideon gets up calls their attention. I'm not sure how this plays out. Clears his throat and he said, if there's anybody here afraid to go to battle, you can go back home now. <laughs> 22,000 men walked home. Well, that take the wind out of yourself. I mean, 10,000, that seems like a pretty impressive number, but still 22,000. And so God said, that's still too much. So he said, I want you to send these men to the brook. 10,000, get them to drink. And you know how some lap the water and some cup the water. 9,700 men didn't make the cut. 300 out of 32,000. And God says, now we got it where I can work. Now Gideon's scared out of his mind. <laughs> but God says, I got this. I got this. Why? God said, I want to show you something. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may work in me. I'm going to tell you, none of this would have happened if emptiness or nothingness had come to our life. And so when you, I don't want to say think you're down to nothing because you may be there. We've been there. When we're down to nothing, we need to know that God can take still and make something with this. Amen. Can we just have family prayer tonight? Would you gather around? Can we respond? Please, I'm asking you, don't hear it. Let's get it. Amen. Let's hide this in our hearts. It's a truth. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.